My Mum Made Me, the show about the wonderful and sometimes the weird ways in which our mums make us who we are today. Hi, it's Paul here. I really hope you're enjoying the show and I'm going to ask you a favour if you are. Please do follow us. If you do, you'll get to hear all of the episodes first and of course it helps with my self-esteem. I'm only joking. Don't forget to rate us. We're currently on 4.9 stars, which is really exciting and every rating makes my mum, Teresa, laugh just a little bit more. I'm joined today by the wonderful Andrew Copson. He is Chief Executive of Humanists UK and Global President of Humanists International. Is that right, Andrew? I'm yes, that currently, right. currently. That's fantastic. Person. Now, I um, actually told my mum that you were coming on the show, and uh, I said, Mum, I think you'll be interested in, in Andrew because of what he does kind of professionally. Um, uh, and do you know what a humanist is? And she said, yes, I know what a humanist is. I said, okay, great. Well, we'll put that question out of the way. Um, but she did actually have a question for you. Oh, yeah, um, And I'll, I'll get it up. Um, she, uh, by the way, uh, I don't know how much you kind of know about my mum, but uh, she, she's very religious, but in a kind of radical way, which I, I think is probably, it's, it's obviously not humanism, but it's probably the closest someone like her could get to humanism. She's free thinking. She's free thinking, mm, exactly. Mm. So she doesn't, so she's not quite doctrinal, if that's even a word. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she, she's gay and she's out and, you know, she goes to church regularly, but she believes all the kind of liberal things about, you know, women's rights, choose, etc. Her question, um, if I bring it up, is... Oh, yeah, here we go. Um, <laughs> the first... <laughs> I, I sent this um, uh, in on the 1st of January on New Year's Day. The 1st of the 12th, 2023, will be World's AIDS Day and previously was assigned World Conscientious Objectors Day yes. for people refusing to serve in the military and or being conscripted. As this is presently a shared event, should not people of both groups be assigned a day? Which I think is this sort of slightly tortuous way of asking the question, but I think you get the question around World Conscientious Objectors. But just for sort of yeah. listeners who don't understand, tell us, tell us a bit about that and how humanists are kind of involved. Well, that's an interesting question, actually, because um, it's interesting that a religious person should ask a humanist about World Conscientious Objectors Day, because... World Conscientious Objectors Day in the UK is actually uh, a mixed humanist and religious ceremony. So in Tavistock Square here in London, there's a stone um, that's been uh, erected to conscientious objectors. Or they don't quite use that phrase. They use the men and women who have established and continue to defend the right not to kill. Um, And there's an annual ceremony there with Quakers and humanists and other uh, religious people who who object. So I definitely think there should be a a bigger day. I'd like to think that day should be as big as, you know, um, Remembrance Day, really, for us, because there yeah. are plenty of people in our uh, society and around the world who deserve the same sort of remembrance that those who fought have. So I agree with her about that. Humanism, which she already knows all about, but maybe your listeners don't. Yes. Um, for the last 150 years, the word humanist has come to mean someone who's not religious, um, but more specifically, um, they put human welfare and the welfare of other um, sentient animals at the centre of their morality. Mm-hmm. Um, They believe that the universe itself doesn't have a purpose or a meaning or a direction and that it's human beings who are creating meaning through um, the way we live our lives, the stories we tell ourselves about our lives in our head, the things we do, the connections we make. Um, And I suppose also there's something about how we make sense of the universe. Um, Humanists don't look to 
revelations or ancient texts mm. or you know personal encounters to understand the way the, the world and the universe works they look to human observation human senses and now obviously the big organized enterprise of science to do those things that's a potted definition paul so i mean there are many longer books than that which will <laughs> tell I you think more that's an amazing definition and of course you've written on this haven't you yes that's true yes um the little book of humanism sunday times bestseller still oh, available in all good bookshops um that's a very short uh book about it um, which is probably best for the general uh, reader, Little Book of Humanism. Was it enjoyable to write, actually, because um, the we got lots of... I wrote it with Alice Roberts, who was president of Humanist UK at the time, so scientist and science broadcaster. And it was very interesting to write it with her because she was very science-y, I was very history and artsy and literary. So, you know, it was good to have quotes from famous scientists next to quotes from James Baldwin and to mix mm. up sort of the two cultures of, of wow. humanism. Because um, we do get a lot of people involved in humanist organisations from a science point of view. Um, and in history, there have been, you know, in the past, there have been more, now less so, but I think still a good number of historians and writers yeah. and, 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 and literary artist figures and so on. And I think you always need to keep those two aspects of uh, humanism in balance with each other. And the book was a good, uh, I think, a good fist at that. And I suppose the obvious question is, how did you come to humanism? And if there are sort of, without kind of wanting to make it sound um, like other organised, it's not an organised religion, but like organised religions, yeah. if there are two sort of strands informing it, where do you fit or kind of where do you fall? Um, in terms of what I've just described as the two different ways yes. of... Yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I thought you were going to ask me about sort of my conversion story. Or, oh, God, uh, is there a conversion story? No, there story? isn't, actually, okay. but, but yeah. people do ask. Um, maybe we'll come to that in a minute, because okay. it's quite interesting, because it's about my mum as well. Right. Um, but, uh, well, I'm obviously more on the arts and humanities side mm. of, of, of things, so the, my way into humanism wasn't the sort of uh, science and reason aspect at all. In fact, you know, I'm not that interested in science. Um, I don't, which is Water a, alert. I know exactly, <laughs> um, and I mean it's very useful and good, yes, and I'm yeah. glad that people enjoy it. Obviously, it's brought us yeah. immense you know, advantages, and it's nice to better than fear and ghosts mm. and the unknown. Um, but really, my appreciation of the humanist approach to things is born out of um, contemplating the human story. Really, I just mm. think that uh, human beings, incredible uh, creatures. Um, born in a meaningless universe, but able to carve out a space for meaning and purpose and relationships. I'm more interested in the sort of, not in the way that we make sense of the outside universe, but more our inner life, really. Yeah. Um, that's always been my uh, preference, my interest. And I'm mm. incredibly interested in people, individuals and their stories. Mm. Things. So that's my angle into the, the humanist. Approach. You mentioned your mum. Yeah, well, of course, because she's a humanist. Yes. So, I mean, that's the interesting thing, is that some people, lots of people who become part of humanist organisations have been religious in their youth. So, Actually, that changes now more. Mm. Now that we're a more secular society, generally, we mm. get more people who've always been non-religious and want to join for other reasons. But a lot of people in the past, and still a large number today, join because they were raised religious. They've, you know, turned away from all of that. And they had a moment at some point in their lives, not a conversion moment, but a sort of realisation moment when they heard the word humanist, realised it described what they already believed um, and the way they were living their lives, and so they signed up for that. Um, for me, unfortunately, I didn't have to do that much thinking at all about it because that's just the way I was raised. Yeah. Um, and not just by my mum, but my, by other uh, other generations in my family, all the women in my, in my family, um, who also had that same view. So I sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable. I think, you know, did I fail to think for myself? Did I, did I, <laughs> did I fail to challenge what was... Uh... There's a sort of good legacy with uh, of humanism in your family. Definitely, yeah, yeah, that's right. And not just, not always conscious 
um, you know, self-described humanism, really. I mean, it was for my mum because she she knew the word, she'd heard the word. Um, but the previous generations of my family who also felt the same way, um, they just knew they weren't religious. Um, and they were they were they weren't part of an educated sort of middle class secularism. They were part of a um, religion rejecting working class secularism. So mm. it's sort of like you know, what are priests for? They just take the working man's money at the end right. of the week. You know, right. we don't want any of that. It's nothing for us. Um, and uh, they were unchurched, as, as the old-fashioned unchurched. expression uh, God, used to be. Unchurched, what a horrible phrase. Mm. So it was partly out of... This may sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but part of what informed your, I guess, grandmother and great-grandmother's humanism was a little bit of sort of necessity and self-survival in the sense of you didn't want to get exploited by the church and Absolutely. the men in it. They didn't want to be exploited by the church. They didn't want to be exploited by men. They didn't have that much to do with men, actually, uh, my, my grandmother and great-grandmothers. And in fact, they had the sort of lives that would have been very harshly judged by both um, churchmen and Christianity. You know, my, um, I think both my great-grandmothers uh, on my mother's side, I don't think either of them were married when they were first pregnant. Um, I know that my great-grandmother's own mother um, had an on-and-off uh, situation with a with an Irishman in, in, in the late 90s. So the other thing is that I should explain, because it sounds like I'm really old now and, and, and <laughs> somehow knew all these generations of my family. They all, they all had children in their mid or late teens. Okay. Um, so they were 16, 17, 18, 19 when they had their children. So actually, when I um, grew up, I did know lots of generations of my family because they were all so young when so, they had such their short children. generations, exactly, yeah. Exactly, really short wow. generations. So, um, uh, in fact, I, you know, I think both of my, two of my, both of my mothers, uh, both the great-grandmothers that were my mother's grandmothers, if you yes. see what I mean, yeah. uh, were alive when I was at university, you know, when I was an undergraduate. Still then, yeah, massively. So... Um, so that's that, that that happens to be why I know them. So they had the sort of lives... Yeah, so I say my great-grandmother's mother had this sort of on-off Irish guy who, in some censuses... We looked at the census once for fun to sort of see in, like, 1901, 1911. Sometimes he's the lodger, sometimes he's the husband. <laughs> and ten years later, he's the lodger again. No. Sometimes he's not there at all. Oh it's, okay. it's really funny. Wow. Um, and so, um, you know, they were the sort of lives that they had. Um, and also, you know... Uh, married to coal miners or itinerant labourers or manual workers of different kinds in places where this was not middle-class Church of England-type territory at all. This was, you know, life at the... At the uh, sort of the bottom end of the socio-economic spectrum. And I I think, actually, there's always been, in England, certainly, probably across Europe, maybe across the world, just a huge amount of people who are just completely uninterested in religion or anti-religion at that level of society because it's got nothing to do with them. and What it preaches doesn't touch their lives. What it's about doesn't appeal to their experiences. Um, And and for women especially, I guess, that was true. So that was true of all the generations of women in my family. I um, I'm going to ask you a question, but I want to make an observation uh, in front of the question, which is, it's so beautiful to hear you kind of describe this um, community that, in part, comes from rejection, but also within generations of your family as well. And the reason I reflect on that is, I think, for my mum, who, as I said, is probably the closest to being a, a humanist without being a humanist. If mm. that makes sense, in terms of what you described. That makes sense. Um, going physically going to church, which is, is I, I always found a bit weird. It's sort of like a um, a taught uh, habit rather than anything else. But anyway, for her, I think is a, is a sense of kind of having a community, right. um, and it doesn't really matter that they're religious, um, but it's sort of physically being in the same place with people. And you know, it was interesting to her going through COVID and missing all of that, and then sort of returning to it. But the question that I have for you is. 
thinking about your own mum being raised in that sort of tradition with that sort of deep sense of family and community from what it sounds like, Mm. paint us a picture of, you know, the cradle from which she came and how she, um, you know, sort of adopted or or kind of um, lived the humanist life. Because I'd love to sort of start from there with your mum and then work forward. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think that she, I mean, I don't want to idealise the, the, the situation because I think that one of the things that my mum experienced, and I have a very frank and open relationship with my mum, you know, so we, we talk about these things a lot and have done in the past, sort of exhausted all these topics. Um, when she was growing up, I think that um, having all those, having that close and the positive spin on it, supportive grandmothers and also huge like numbers of great aunts as well mm. i mean there's just women as far as i old women as far as i can see in my family um she you think that was a really positive thing and i think it was to a large extent but she also i think felt it disrupted her relationship with her own mum quite okay. a lot as well so i mean mm. i think she describes and it's interesting that she describes this because she can't possibly remember it so it must have been something she'd been told um she describes you know when having first been born and sort of brought home and then immediately being whisked away from her mum to all these other women really? you know, grandmothers and yeah. great grandmothers and yeah. great aunts and so on um and uh less so with her brother she has an older brother and i definitely think that it was less so than with him because i remember my grandmother used to say that she always felt that my mum who was her second and final child um had almost been her baby whereas mm. my uncle had felt like he was just absolutely immediately taken away from wow. the family like for yeah. every, everyone else nothing but to do with my, gender it's just sort of happened just yeah, yeah i think so yeah that's yeah. right well because like i say i mean actually um it wasn't a family in which there were many young people or many babies at all you know the, right. most people were depleted most generations yes, were depleted yeah, yeah. by the time the sort of mid 20th century yeah. came along um and uh, many of the women didn't marry and didn't have children in fact the majority of them didn't mm. so um so I think that, you know, it was a supportive cradle, you know, in in, in, in a family sense, but also I think probably slightly um, stifling. And I know that my grandma tried very hard to be what it was not in her instinct to be, um, a sort of conventional 50s, 60s um, housewife and mother uh, type figure groovy granny or um, sort of no no I think I think she had I think she had aspirations of conformity which lasted okay. I think unfortunately for my mum through my mum's uh, yeah. childhood um, and which she later gave up I mean this was right. not this was a in the context of my grandmother's own um, 82 year long life this was a flash in the pan but unfortunately for my mum it coincided with my mum's own youth yeah so my grandmother went through this sort of like i'm a 50s housewife phase um tried to be very conventional it didn't work out well for her at all and um you know i think they went once to the bowling club in the village where they'd moved to and my <laughs> grandmother hated everyone so much they never went back and yeah. she was like snubbed everyone forever um, and lived a different more alternative life instead um but my mum i think actually found uh her childhood relationship with her grandmother with my with with her mother sorry um a little bit stifling because mm. of the unfortunate times in which um uh, they were born and i mean this is something that people don't talk about very much about the social history of the 50s and 60s but i think there was enormous pressure post war mm. for sort of like to get society back to an yeah. imagined idea of how it should yeah. have been uh, yeah. before and i think that you know my grandmother was an unfortunate victim of that and my mother was the same so i know for example that in spite of the home beliefs um my mum went to sunday school it was as conventional oh, as that really? yeah 
Um, for religious reasons or kind of educational? I, or? I think for cultural reasons. Right. I think, and apparently this is true, that in the 50s and, and, and early 60s, there was sort of a big spike um, in things like Christings and in, and, and in Sunday schools and so on. Okay. And I think it was fed by a sort of national, um, you know, anti-communist um, yeah. uh, Christian uh, surge. I mean, even when you get agnostic politicians like Winston Churchill talking about Christian civilization yes. in the 40s and 50s, you can tell something's happening that's not religious, it's yes. something else. And I think yeah. that... My mum was un unfortunately part of that. So although the home convictions and beliefs weren't that, she did get plunged into this world. And I would say that she had a much better relationship with her mother um, as a young adult and, and, and later in life than she did. And then she had a very good relationship, a very open and solid relationship with um, my grandmother, her mother. So I wouldn't say um, that uh, at, the, at the time of her childhood that was when... My mother was really formed. My mum was really formed um, in the way that your, your question uh, is about. I would say that's probably older. And I think mm. her, her best relationship with her own mum was probably once we were born, me and my, and my younger brother. And then, again, very young. So my mum was, I can't know. Anyway, before, earlier than 20. Yeah. Younger than 20 when yeah. she had me. And so, um, and then that sort of began. And my grandmother was very young as well, of course, yes, yeah, even yeah. by that point. Um, I suppose she'd have been about my age, actually. Wow. Um, and when I was born. And so I think that's when their relationship really uh, so began to be a very good one, very strong one. Tell, tell us your uh, mum's name, paint us a mental picture, um, and then let's pick up some from where you've described. So okay. you, you're, you're born, what was she doing uh, in her life? Like, how, what was the sort of, how, did the, how and why did the relationship change? My mum's name is Julia. Um, and her her parents' name was Cunningham, and then when she married my dad, which was a brief marriage, mm -hmm. um, her name was Copson, which obviously is my name, and she never changed her name back, even though she was only married to him for what? Really? So I don't know why that was, that she never changed it back. Um, that's something I should have asked her. Ah. Uh, maybe that'll come later. But um, she... She'd left home quite uh, young. She left school at uh, 16... Um, started work uh, at the local social security office where she turned up at the age of uh, 16 and some very um, uh, Gorgon-like, in, in her memory, Gorgon-like woman who ran the office said, why do you want to work at the... Um, and she said, because I want to help people. <laughs> and, just sort of naive oh, yeah. and the woman sort of like laughed and gave her a job. Yeah. <laughs> and so she started working. Uh, there, um, and I think was there for a few. I think that's the the only job she had prior to uh, my being born, actually. Um, and uh, she started work there. Um, at some point, obviously, met my dad. Oh, I'm realizing I don't know anything about her. My dad actually mm, I don't know how she met my dad. Um, or Is your dad still in your life? Is still he with us? He died. Um, Sorry, uh, in 2010. Um, and we didn't have much to do with him, actually. Right. So, I mean, shortly after um, my younger brother, who's two years younger than me, uh, was born, they separated. Mm. And um, so they were married for, I guess, two to three years. Mm. And he did um, uh, come sort of in and out of our lives a little bit, but um, he, but not really, not in any serious way. And he had other families. Uh, there, wow. was, there was a lot going on with him. Um, so, uh, yeah. 
men have not figured in my uh, upbringing family very much actually i must say and um, and historically as well throughout the generation yeah that's yeah. true <laughs> that's true actually um so he so i was raised much more by my mum yes. her parents and my great grandmothers you know i would see those as the people who really raised me and formed me yeah. so i mean he was a nice man and don't get me wrong he was sure. fun Sure. Um, and uh, he just wasn't as all, there all as uh, kind of full time. So no, no, yeah. and I don't. I wasn't fathered by him in no. that sort of as an active process. That's certainly um, not so, the case. So, Julia, yep. two sons, brief sort of relationship. Dad wasn't yeah. in your life. She started in the uh, sort of working for the the local social sort of services, the government, yeah, yeah, yeah. The local social services. What was childhood like i remember you telling me your mum worked as a dinner lady she was a dinner lady yeah was it a dinner lady at your school yes it was yeah. oh my she, god yeah, she did that How thing that? as well exactly um i, I mean i think some mums d- did this at the time yeah. i seem to remember there were always mums floating around primary right. school you know and they were either cleaners or dinner ladies yeah. um now they're probably a classroom assistant yes that seems yeah, to yeah, be, yeah. That they, um but they were there sort of in the in in the in the background um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was always very nice. In fact, when I went to my secondary school, which is in the next town along, um, I was horribly homesick because oh. my mum wasn't there oh. <laughs> at the age of 11, which is quite... Yeah, that's a tender age. Is it? I was going to say I maybe I should have been more... Should have less t- less tender at that age. No, no, no. Is oh, it a God, tender no. I was, age? I was, I was a soft plum. Oh, <laughs> I think I just... I got my mum... I remember for my 11th birthday, on the day of my birthday, my mum gave us... Sorry, gave me um, a house key. Um, uh, obviously house because she would allow me from then to walk to school on my own so i think i was yeah anyway but back to you well no i think i was quite similar so i used to sort of go and uh sit in the home economics teacher's classroom at lunchtime because mm. i didn't want to talk to any other children because i just missed my mum you know oh. and it, yeah it was sad and um and that was in part obviously a symptom i suppose of the fact that she'd been very close and present throughout my primary uh, yeah. education either you know in the school or um uh, did 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 parents sometimes? I mean, she wasn't there as a parent; she was there as an employee, obviously. But I think there were also maybe some people employed to stand in the playground at lunchtime and things. Yes, like that. she might yeah. have done that. Um, I was and... always really scared of those women because it was invariably women. Yeah, was uh, it? I, so I, 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 I never remember a man. No, doing no, that job. I don't either. But I think it was the power of the whistle. You know, they had those sort of really loud I whistles. Do. I do, and they were loud. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that 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 sort of like, got, like that if someone blows happen. a whistle at me now, I, know. I pay attention. Yeah, I'll do what yeah, they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, we've been trained for we some have. sort of fascism. <laughs> Thanks to Julia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she, she, I can't think that she was a strict no, no, no. one. Actually, not. Um, probably not at all. I mean, she was a very non-strict person. Um, she she once let me stay home from from school just because I felt like it. For example, and I was like, she's like, are you ill? And I said, oh, I might. Yeah, young bear. Then you know she was very soft. Uh, yeah, parent um, is a very soft parent. Uh, so yeah, she she did those sorts of things, and obviously the fact that then I missed her so much at secondary school was probably because she was so mm. present um, in earlier schooling. So I was a very, I was a very stay-at-home mothered sort of child, mm. and even at school, you know, school wasn't the great escape for me that it was for some people until I got to secondary school and then actually it was a, a great escape and then I began to feel some of the resentment that teenagers actually feel about their parents unfortunately directed at my mum again a flash in the pan in the context of a and when you say resentment is it sort of is, was it anything more than I guess what you'd expect from a 13 14 year old boy no I don't think so okay. um I don't think it was extreme in any way I mean I did well it <sighs> One unpleasant truth might be that it was slightly tainted by academic um, tensions on my part. Mm. I mean, so I was whisked off out of this very, very working class sort of, you know, um, 
leave school at 16, if not earlier, sort of environment. I went off under uh, the government's assisted place scheme, which no one really remembers now. No, apart what from is maybe, that? Well, um, from 1979 to 1997, yeah. four children who did well on an academic exam that you received at 11 mm. had their fees to the local independent school paid by the government. I see. Okay. Um, and not just their f- our fees, but our uniforms, our food, wow. educational trips, but not... Uh, Not skiing. Trips, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to come skiing. In a minute, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It was actually quite funny to be an assisted place child, actually, because sort of the, the most of the time, well, we were the cleverest children in the school. Yeah. Of course, that yeah. was uh, that was always the case because we had been plucked from. You know, we were ready for education, we were thirsty for education, yes, desperate yeah, yeah, for yeah. education. So we were always, and that's true actually of the reports that have been done of the whole scheme sort of retrospectively by think tanks like the Sutton Trust. They've shown that assisted place pupils hugely outperformed mm. the sort of middle class um, mm. the children who were there because, you know, they've yeah. been tutored into it or whatever. But also there's, there's a, I, I guess, a kind of psychological benchmark of... I'm not sort of reflecting on your um, family, but certainly mine, a psychological benchmark of what happens if you don't succeed at education, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. what, you know, the the sort of circumstances that kind of my parents, and I suspect your mum, grew up in and raised me and probably you in initially, um, act as that sort of like, okay, well, there's that, and I don't necessarily want to sort of like live like that for the entirety of my life, so I'll work hard, right? Yes, and one for the children, obviously, as well. I mean, I yeah. think that's the other thing, is that you feel that uh, it's, it's, there was a strong vibe, um, looking back on it, of sort of like, our children are going to do better, you know, my children are going to do better than this. And that's, yeah, the, that's a great point. Um, I think that was very present. Um, and I think, so coming back to the my guilty confession, which this was, it was, it was about, part of my teenage resentment was probably... Um, directed, although I do not feel this in any way now, um, and I didn't really probably wouldn't have felt it in the words I'm about to use um, even then necessarily. Perhaps um, looking at other families uh, in the school, right. seeing houses full of books, mm. you know, very different ways of living. Um, at the same time as I thought they were all incredibly pompous and stuck yeah. up, and you know, all yeah. the other things I sure. thought about those people by and large, not universally. Um, and thinking, well, you know, um, maybe maybe judging a little bit the, the the home background, negatively judging the home background that I'd come from. By contrast, with that being at a school, after all, that praised middle class values mm. of, of of the sort that I was seeing. So I think some of my teenage resentment might have been fueled by that, but probably a large part of it was just the normal hormones racing around your body, and and also obviously uh, gay young people feel as more strongly as yeah. well this sort of instinct, to, especially in the eighties and nineties, not so much now. Hopefully, when their families um, are more aware of 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 well, well, it's easier for them to be themselves. Yeah. But you know, this strong feeling, sort of, like, I've got to get out. Yeah, this, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. there's another place, there's somewhere I need to be, yeah. and it's not here. It's, it's, there's a sense so, of sort of needing to take a control of your own destiny because exactly. if you don't, you're kind of subsumed into whatever normality kind of looks and like. I and I felt that, and I felt that, and I think probably that came out against my mum at the time because she was the, she was my parent, no one else. Was but it, it wasn't about her in retrospect, that's what I can say, you know, it wasn't about her, it was nothing she'd done. Um, it was my situation um, that, that fostered uh, th- those feelings. And actually, um, from the educational point of view, my going off to that school, um, which was a great school, by the way, and, you know, uh, it was a great opportunity and I made the most of it and I enjoyed it in lots of ways. Um, actually... Uh, prompted her to get back into education too. So she signed up for a government scheme, Uh, which was called the 2 plus 2 scheme, where you did two years at your local technical college. Yeah. Um, I think this was paid for the government as well. I mean, in those days when everything was paid by the government, which was brilliant. Yeah. Um, And... um, 
then that the 2 plus 2 scheme sent you for the next two years part-time to your local university. So she went to the University of Warwick and got a BA. Wow. So I was wow. not the first in my family to go to university oh my because God. she did it before, uh, three, three years before uh, I did, actually, as a mature student. You, you and I share um, that um, in that my mum, I think when I was about 13 or 14, um, actually probably a bit younger than that, um, she left school with, um, I think she left school age 15, <clears throat> you know, went straight into work, didn't have any qualifications. And so when I was around that age, she kind of went back to school initially, did her...